Hosea chapter 4. Hosea the prophet now indicts the people for their sins. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no one find fault, and let none offer reproof, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night and I will destroy your mother. But my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity, and it will be like people, like priest. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And they will eat, but not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot, and your brides Commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot, or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people, without understanding, are ruined. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also, do not go to Gilgal, or go up to Beth Aven, and take the oath as the Lord lives. Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their liquor gone, they play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings, and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices." As is typical of the prophets, they indict the people for their sins. They list the offenses that they have committed against God. The people as criminals against the judge of heaven need to know what their offenses are because one day God will punish them for all of their offenses unless they repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. We begin in Hosea's explanation of the offenses in verse 1. We use the word indictment. Well, verse 1 says, The Lord has a case against 
the inhabitants of the land. He has a case. He has a lawsuit because he's the great judge, the righteous judge of heaven. This word of the Lord is for all Israel to obey. It's likely when he says, O sons of Israel, that he means the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, because later in verse 15, he says, Do not let Judah become guilty. Don't be a bad example since you are more numerous than the tribe of Judah, since you are of more power than the tribe of Judah. Don't let them follow your example and become guilty too. So don't be a bad example to them. He preaches this message because in verse 1, there's no faithfulness, kindness, or knowledge of God in the land. He speaks in absolute terms. He says there is none. None of these godly virtues exist. Why? Because very, very few people actually are godly. Very, very few people actually obey. The vast majority who claim the faith don't actually believe in the faith. That's his point in verse 1. They don't have any of this. What do they have? What do they do? Verse 2, they swear, deceive, murder, steal, commit adultery, employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. There's no end to the bloodshed. They add sin to sin. It just keeps on happening. There's no reprieve, no break from their sins. Nothing is um, giving them relief. Their cities, their towns, wherever they go, all of these sins occur. And even the violence mentioned that bloodshed follows bloodshed. These are breaches of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are summarized, at least the part of the second part of the Ten Commandments, are summarized there in verse 2. He's certainly going to discuss the first part of the Ten Commandments when he condemns idolatry. He's going to do that later in the chapter. But in, in verse 2, the second part. Remember, if we claim to love God, it will show by love of neighbor. If we don't show love of neighbor, then we do not love God. This is what the apostles also taught. Jesus also taught this, that we must show our love for God by loving our neighbor. 1 John 4, 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John 4, 20 to 21. Because they are committing these transgressions against one another, they don't love God. And that is the physical, tangible, visible evidence that the prophet says, you obviously know all of this is happening in your country. Well, what's the consequence? What's the punishment? Verse 3, the land mourns, everyone languishes, even the animals do. Why? Because if God withholds rain and there is a drought, then the animals will also languish. They will be parched. There will be a drought, no crops, nothing to eat for both the wild animals and the domestic animals. And even the fish of the sea disappear. 
they don't even have what they need and they die off. Verses four to six. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof for your people are like those who contend with the priest. He's saying here that there are so many people, so many people who are corrupt that they cannot point the finger at each other. They cannot offer reproof. They can't lead the way. They can't show the right way because everybody is so corrupt. They can't rebuke each other. They can't confront each other. They can't reprove each other. Nobody can do that. And these people are so wicked that they, are, they contend with the priest. Likely he means the godly priest. That they are so wicked, they have no shame in picking a fight with the godly priest. Verse 5, so you will stumble by day and the prophet also will stumble with you by night and I will destroy your mother. Therefore, they're going to stumble and fall. Also, the prophet, the false prophet, verse 5 has to be the false prophet. They will also stumble with the people they mislead. And the mother that God will destroy, who's the mother? From chapters 1 and 2, the mother is a designation of the whole nation, the body of the people. The mother is a designation of the whole people, and then the individuals in the nation are the children of the mother, mentioned in verse 6. He's saying I'm, he, that he's going to destroy the whole country because of their unrepentant wickedness. Verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Remember, my people and your children refer to the individuals in verse 6. Well, the individuals are going to be forgotten by God because the individuals rejected knowledge they are going to be destroyed because they lack knowledge. And they for, how have they? What's the source of their true knowledge? The words of God or the law of God. They forget, reject the law of God. Therefore, God's going to forget and reject them. He also is going to reject them from being his priest. Now, the ten tribes... They were not priests, were they? Wasn't the tribe of Levi charged with the temple and the family of Aaron charged with some of the internal rituals of the temple? So why does he call the whole nation my priest? He calls them that because of Exodus 19. Exodus 19. 4 to 6. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. At Sinai, these words are delivered to Moses and then the people. 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. He says there, if they are obedient, then they will be God's kingdom of priests or royal priests. They will have both designations at the same time. They will be kings and priests at the same time, which was forbidden for most of the Old Testament. Moses forbade the kings to be priests. The kings were from the tribe of Judah, at least in the southern kingdom, from the tribe of Judah, and they could not be priests. But in this passage, he's calling all 10 or all 12 tribes priests, royal priests. He's saying, you people, if you obey me, I will consider you royal priests. How can that be? Priests exist as mediators, correct? If Aaron's family existed to represent the Levites and the rest of the nation in the temple, and the Levites were set apart to represent the rest of the nation in the temple, then if God calls the rest of the nation royal priests, for whom are they priests? Israel would be priests to the nations, to the rest of the nations, which are mentioned in Exodus 19, verse 5, among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. Because they disobey, Hosea 4, 6 says, you're not my priest. You're worthless. You cannot glorify me to the rest of the nations, among the rest of the nations. You're wicked and you're shameful. So you will not be my priest to represent me to the rest of the world. Verse 7. The more, Hosea 4, 7. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. The problem with the people was not that they were few in number. The problem with the people was not that God did not bless them. He blessed them. That's why it says they multiplied. However, their multiplication did not prevent them from transgression. The more they had, the more people they had, it did not mitigate their sin, but it actually increased their sin which shows how much sin is embedded in human nature. Therefore, their glory will be turned into shame. This either is a reference to their profession of faith in God, or it's a reference to the things they boast of, such as their idols and their wealth and their numbers, being numerous, a numerous nation, a populous nation, that God's going to reverse what they boast in. He's going to reverse it and bring shame on them. Verse 8, They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And they will eat, but not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. 
The they of verse 8 is likely the leaders of the people who feed on the sin of the common people, the rest of the people. The elite feed on the masses. Verse 8. Well, because of that, whatever the punishment God gives to the people will also be to the priests, the leadership. Everyone's going to be punished. Nobody is going to be spared. The whole nation is completely corrupt. And part of their punishment is that they're going to eat, but never be satisfied and have a full stomach. Because foreign invaders are there. They will be their slaves. They will be punished, destroyed, killed, murdered. There will be genocide. And then nobody will be there to till the land. Nobody will be there also to watch the animals, to care for the animals, so that they might kill the animals and eat them, or raise the animals and use their produce, their milk, their eggs, their, uh, their wool, such as for the sheep. None of that will be available, and they're going to have great need. They will play the harlot. In the first few verses, when he says they will play the harlot, he means spiritual harlotry. He means spiritual prostitution. That's what he means. It will become a little confusing. But remember, in chapters 1 and 2, he was using this metaphor of God being the husband and the people being his wife, the wife who prostituted herself right? Who played the harlot. And this analogy he used to say they have done it spiritually, but we're also going to see in a few moments that they did it physically. First, they abandoned God, and then they show their abandonment by practicing sin. Well, verse 10, they think it's going to benefit them to play the harlot but they're not going to increase. It's not going to help them. Remember, even in chapter 1, it was said um, in verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 7, and she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. She wants to go back to the Lord, but... It's not going to help. Verse 8, For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, for the idol. Well, they're not going to benefit. They think it's going to help them, but it's not going to help them. And why? Verse 10, Because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. They have the word of God, but but they are completely ignorant of it, or whatever knowledge they have of it, they won't obey it. They refuse to obey. They they are so stubborn, they refuse to obey. They stopped giving heed to what God says so that they can do whatever they want. Well, what is it that they want to do? Verses 11 and following. 11 to 14. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. 
for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. Verse 13, they offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. Up to verse 13, he is clearly talking about spiritual harlotry. And he says, spiritual harlotry, verse 11, just as wine and new wine, when you indulge, overindulge in wine and new wine, they take away your understanding. If you worship idols, if you prostitute yourself spiritually and worship idols, just like when you drink too much wine and new wine, it takes away your understanding. You're not sober anymore. You're a drunk. So they are spiritually intoxicated by worshiping idols. Spiritually intoxicated by worshiping idols. What do they do? They have a wooden idol. Look at that word, wooden. It's not even a gold one. It's a wooden idol that can't help them. They actually made it or had somebody make it and yet they consult it. They even have a wand, a wand or a rod, which they use to, in various ways to practice divination, to, to seek after the spirits or seek after riches, sources, um, resources that might benefit them, like looking for certain objects in the ground or trying to call up certain spirits, spirits of the dead. They do things like this because a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. The spirit of harlotry led their spirit astray and they departed from their God. That's verse 12. That's the way we clearly understand he's talking about spiritual harlotry. And then 13, the women and the brides, the daughters and the brides, they go to the tops of the mountains to burn incense and they have lush green trees, fruitful or green trees there, that give them shade while they are at the altars and the shrines of the idols. So it's a convenient place on the mountaintops to practice idolatry. The women are doing it, but not only the women. The women usually go front and center. They, they usually, like Eve in the garden, they usually go headlong and headstrong into sin but the men follow after, like Adam did. Verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. No, no, I'm not going to punish them, meaning I'm not going to punish them alone. It's not as though they are the only wicked ones. They are wicked, but it's not as though they are the only wicked ones. Verse 14, for the men themselves go apart with harlots, and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes, so the people without understanding are ruined. He includes also all the men. Because if there are prostitutes, actual physical prostitutes, who's visiting them? But men, right? And then it says they even do it in the temple, so the men are also following into spiritual harlotry. 
physical harlotry and spiritual harlotry, the men also, inside temples, inside so-called holy places, they do it. This is the human nature, common perennial human nature, that they want to justify their sins by saying God or the gods endorse it in the temple. If the God or the gods endorse it, then it's okay. Don't confront me. Don't tell me I did wrong. That's the point, and that's why they go away like that. But they're all ruined. They're all destroyed. They're nothing. Verse 15. 15. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also do not go to Gilgal or go up to Beth Aven and take the oath as the Lord lives. Don't set a bad example. Notice, if Judah sins by following Israel's example, is Judah also guilty? Yes. It says right there, do not let Judah become guilty. But Israel, leading the way, is guilty too. There's plenty of guilt to spread. Those who lead the way and those who follow are both guilty. We can't say that the followers are not guilty. The followers are also guilty. But this is a warning that Israel who leads them might not receive more guilt for leading and teaching Judah to follow them. Don't let it happen. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beth Aven. Gilgal, remember, in Amos, Gilgal in Amos and even Bethel in Amos, Dan in Amos, Beersheba in Amos, in those cities, they set up shrines for idols. They set up pilgrimages. They set up these uh, mountainous places or hilly places in order to build altars and worship idols, like Jeroboam did. Jeroboam I, Jeroboam son of Nebat, in 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12. He started this mess. He started it. And it continues. In verse 15, Beth Aven is a nickname or a code name for Bethel. Bethel is an actual place in the northern kingdom, but in the southern part of the northern kingdom, not too far from the tribe of Judah. It's mentioned again in verse Chapter 5, verse 8, sound an alarm at Beth Aven. But this word Aven means iniquity. Bethel, as named by Jacob in Genesis 28 and Genesis 35, Bethel, this town that Jacob visited, God appeared to him and Jacob called it house of God. But the prophet is calling it Beth Aven because Aven means iniquity. Instead of house of God, he calls it house of iniquity. He changes the name of the place to expose their sin because it's no longer the house of God, it's a house of sin. So he renames it. Prophets and apostles sometimes do so. Rename people and rename places 
to describe, to depict their true character. Well, what do they do in this place? They take oaths saying, as the Lord lives. As the Lord lives. They worship idols, but they call on the Lord as though the Lord endorses their worship of idols. He said, quit doing that. You know that that's wrong. Remember, this is also what Israel did in Exodus 32. It's also what Jeroboam did in 1 Kings 12. In both Exodus 32 and 1 Kings 12, they made idols, and then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Using the Lord's name, ascribing His character to the idol, and then worshiping the idol. Same here. 16, Hosea 4, 16. Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? No, the answer is no. The rhetorical question, the answer is absolutely not. If they are so stubborn, so untrainable like a heifer, this heifer or young cow, right? They're not able, or God's not able to train Israel. Israel refuses to listen. So just like the master of the cow, the owner of the cow or heifer would have to finally, if he's not skilled enough or does not have the wisdom or power enough to train the heifer, he has to give up. Maybe just kill it or sell it, something or the other. And God can't pasture the heifer. He can't do it. He can't guide it anymore. Why? Verse 17. Now he's talking about walking away. God's talking about walking away from the people because they refuse to listen. Verse 17 confirms it. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Just leave him alone. He has chosen idols. Ephraim is another word for Israel because Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. So God says, let him alone. No more. There are similar words found in Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 13 to 14. Matthew 15, 13 to 14. Christ pronounces these words of condemnation against the Pharisees and the scribes. Matthew 15, 13 and 14. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man leads a blind man... Both will fall into a pit. Now it's time to abandon them. There's no point ranting and raving and foaming at the mouth when people won't listen. Just give it up and walk away. There's a point at which we have to realize there's no point preaching anymore. If they don't want to listen, then walk away. Leave them alone. And God is saying, it's ready, it's time, it's the time. God is ready to walk away 
from Ephraim. Leave him alone. He uses him as a unit, as a body, as one person, though he's talking about the whole nation. It's called a collective singular. Let him alone. Verse 18, their liquor gone, they play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. They won't quit. Even after the liquor goes out of their system and they become sober, they practice their sin again. So soberness doesn't help them to stop sinning. Soberness gives them the opportunity to go to the mountaintop again or to go to the store again or to go to the temple again or to go to whatever place where they can sin again. They use their sobriety to frame themselves or provide for themselves another opportunity to sin. Certainly they're sinning when they are unsober or drunk in the midst of sin, but even when they have a moment of common sense, they don't use the common sense to resist sin. They just keep going. The wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The wind, the strong wind, carries the, the wings of a bird from place to place, right? And in this same way, the strong winds of their sins carry them off to a different place, to the place of sin. But God says, they will be ashamed. Their day of shame will come because they refuse to repent. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.